Progressive Rugby League. Hello, John O'Duncan. You know, the other day, a good friend of mine and regular listener to the show observed that, like a Komodo dragon, apparently, this podcast hasn't ventured too far from home recently. It wasn't a criticism. She's a good friend. But of course I took it as one. And in typical fashion, when I feel flustered, I answered, yeah, nah, and changed the subject. But it did make me think, it's been a while since we took the pulse of the game in the UK. Because it's been quite the year up north. The finish to the Betfred Championship was really something. Wigan in the dying minutes. The battle at the top and bottom of Betfred's Super League has also been hot. Haven't given up Sylvan. Of course, the championship, brought to you by Betfred, is looking enticing too. Leo Featherstone. Meanwhile, it looks like League One, with thanks to Betfred, is Keithley's to lose. The women's game continues to improve, with St. Helens vying to add the Betfred and Boss Women's Super League title to its Betfred Insignia Challenge Cup. And let's not forget that Leeds took out the wheelchair title, made possible, maybe, by Betfred. Hey, you get the picture, I reckon. That's a lot of bet for it. And look, I want to make it clear up front. This episode does not aim to be patronising or condescending to companies that are helping to prop up British Rugby League and what have been trying financial times. But this is an interesting period for the commercial side of the sport in the UK. TV revenue has plummeted, and the RFL has entered into a strategic partnership with IMG to bring back the dollars in the future. In the meantime... The RFL is leaning heavily on Betfred at a time when UK regulations relating to gambling marketing are on the verge of being tightened. A recent article in the UK's The Critic magazine surveys British Rugby League's predicament and wonders, does Rugby League have a gambling problem? The article's author is Anthony Broxton, and as the driving force behind the tides of history, a UK Labour Party digital history and communications project, naturally sprinkled with Rugby League think pieces of course, Anthony is perfectly placed to guide us through this and other complex rugby league-infused topics. So why don't we pick his brain on UK rugby league and the society and culture it inhabits in 2022. Anthony Broxton, welcome to the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Absolute pleasure. We probably should have asked Bat Fred to sponsor this podcast as well. They probably would have helped it. <laughs> oh, I could have used it, yeah. Too late, though. Too late. Now, Anthony, thank you very much for coming along. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, let's perhaps start with your recent article in the Critic magazine, shall we? It's a typically fabulous, well-researched, beautifully compiled piece, if I may say. Now, the premise, unless I'm mistaken, is essentially that Betfred, uh, a Warrington-based betting house owned by a bloke called Fred Dunn or Doan, who I assume is a colourful character, even though I don't know who he is or anything about him. <laughs> Uh, that, bet, that bet Fred essentially has a monopoly over British Rugby League's commercials. It's an obvious question, but important for context. How did we get to this point of monopoly? It's a very good question, and that's the reason why I wrote the article. I think, in many ways, Rugby League has kind of sleepwalked into the bet Fred monopoly over the past five years or so. I mean... 2015, we had no gambling sponsorship in the sport whatsoever. And then over the course of the last seven years, Betfred had taken over every major property of the game, mm. as you outlined in your brilliant introduction. So that means that it doesn't matter where you like to watch your rugby league in, in England, whether it's top of Super League, Cornwall, London, if you're, if you're the hipsters, or you're a traditional supporter in Featherstone, Batley, Barrow, wherever, mm. Betfred is absolutely all over the pitch, the referee 
jersey, the corner flag, the ball, the programme. It's all over Channel 4's coverage of the game in terms of it's got the colours of, of red and blue on the scoreboard because it, it funds some of that. It's also got the women's game in the wheelchairs, as we said, and now the announcement that really started to, to kind of get alarm bells ringing was that they're going to sponsor the England jersey mm. for the World Cup this autumn. Now, traditionally, the kind of domestic Super League sponsorship was different than the international because the international higher profile we could traditionally get bigger sponsors such as Gillette or Dacia involved but something's changed Mm. there's been no explanation of why we've gone with Betfred whether this is a kind of continuation of the relationship or they were the only offer on the table or we've decided that we think that the sponsor that really should align with the game is Betfred. There's been no explanation of it. So this was a hopefully an article that kind of begins a debate mm. within the game about that. And obviously, which we'll go on to talk about, there's the kind of political changes that are happening with the sponsorship. Just one point to make on how we've ended up in this position. Mm. It wasn't long ago that, you know, the game didn't want any gambling sponsorship at all. Mm. So we're talking 2012, the clubs vote against a £1 million per season rumoured I mean we never know how much is actually offered but it was rumoured that £1 million a season was offered by Betfair Exchange Mm. to sponsor the Super League and clubs for whatever reason decided that it wasn't what they wanted to do and they gave away the title sponsorship for free (laughs) they gave it to a haulage company called Stobart Mm. and essentially in exchange for about I think it was 300 trucks with players um, faces on it in all different poses and scoring tries and all the rest of it they gave away the title sponsorship for free now at the time they thought that this was worth more than the one million and that it would actually have better PR um, advertising marketing opportunities for the game because players would be driving up and down the country people would see it maybe watch rugby league within a few months that deal was cancelled because there was absolutely no way of measuring how successful that deal was whether it was TV viewing figures, whether it was people watching the game, there was no way to show how it was done. Yeah. We're basically living with the aftermath of that decision, mm. which has basically opened the door to the gambling companies to come in because they have the cash to, to sponsor the game. So yeah. it sounds like the hierarchy at Rugby League just thought, never again, <laughs> we're never going through that again, just accept the money. I think so. I mean, it's never been, it's never been explained, and mm. that's the part of the problem is, you know... There was, it just happened overnight. It was just, you know, now Ladbrokes are sponsoring the Challenge Cup. Okay, we've changed our view on gambling sponsorship. Mm. And, that, and then it was, sorry, it was Coral first, then it was Ladbrokes. Yeah. And then it was Betfred Super League. And then it was Betfred Women's. And then it was Betfred Challenge Cup. And now it's Betfred England team. <laughs> so it's like, it's just, at what point do we just become the Betfred Rugby League in, in people's views in this country are we already there and are the trade-offs that come with that If you and that's what we love to discuss in the podcast and yeah. what the article tries to get to is what are the trade-offs of mm. doing that yes and I mean that is something I learnt from your article actually the Stobart deal I didn't actually realise that that infamous Stobart deal from a decade or so ago when those naming rights were exchanged for, for zero dollars and, and signage on some trucks a, a deal that caused great mirth uh, that came about after the RFL knocked back a, a gambling sponsorship offer. So that kind of dilutes the humour a little bit for me. But anyway, that's very interesting. <laughs> now, um, Anthony, obviously there are risks with having an undiversified portfolio of sponsors. What's going on in the British political landscape in the UK that's making this particular type of sponsorship monopoly 
potentially problematic for rugby league? That's a good question. And I think it actually goes back to the first one as well of, of how did rugby league end up in this position? Because in the early 90s, there was a big push to change the gambling legislation in Britain because uh, we, we invented something called the National Lottery, which obviously a lot of countries have, and that became a massive hit in about 1994. You know, 20 million people or so watched the first episode, and everyone realised that actually people quite liked the idea of becoming a millionaire, about winning money, and a lot of the casinos and bookmakers looked at the introduction of the National Lottery and thought, why can't we liberalise the gambling legislation so that more people can essentially because mm-hmm. maybe they saw you know a bit of a rival an opportunity whatever the timing of it was was perfect for the for the gambling industry because the legislation had been changed since the 1960s so it was still kind of state controlled post-war central planning mm-hmm. government could decide how many betting shops how much could be won it taxed winnings it had a lot of control over the industry while that had happened and that had kind of stayed separate from a lot of the other changes that had happened, a lot of big companies have been privatised by the Conservative government. So like, you know, our utilities, they've been, they were about kind of allowed to roam free without any government kind of intervention. So the Labour government who came in power kind of saw gambling as a way to flex those free market credentials because they were obsessed with looking like they were pro-business. Mm. And when the kind of lobbyists came in and they were saying, we need to you know, we need to open this legislation up, we need to make it easier to have bookmakers, we need to make it easier for people to bet, we need to introduce online, we need to allow sponsorship, they were kind of keen for it. And the thing that happened with, give me the political history here, to give you the rugby context, the big debate that happened was not about all those things that came in eventually. It was about big super casinos mm-hmm. that the government wanted to build in, you know, towns ta- like Blackpool, for example, mm-hmm. would get the opportunity to build massive casinos. That was what got the media attention and the politicians' attention, and that actually was prevented from happening. Mm-hmm. But while that took up all the heat, the bookmakers essentially got everything that they wanted, mm-hmm. and it massively opened up the industry in this country, so it's now one of the most profitable, you know, betting parts of the world you know the uk in terms of the amount but probably behind australia obviously <laughs> but, but um, you know our problem is nothing compared to, to, to some, some of the australian ones but it opened it up and and with these excess profits that, that we were making a lot of it got funded into sports teams and, and and sponsorship to the position now where essentially a lot of kind of government ministers opposition parties there's a big consensus that it's gone too far and there's now a review of that gambling act to kind of roll back some of those freedoms you might call them the mm. liberalizations or they're already going back on it you know in terms of maximum stakes on machines in betting shops and right. and things like that so there's that happening in britain at the minute and what about in terms of i read in your article that it seems to be a movement a bit of tightening of regulations around sports sponsorships as well or is that more a movement of, of clubs? That, that's the controversial aspect. That I mean, it's been delayed because of our um, a change in prime minister, which seems to happen, you know, every every few months these days. But the the, the the outcome of the gambling review that's been taken 
18 months or so or even longer to, to look at which the RFL have contributed to and I assume they've contributed them to say we need Betfred to continue sponsoring our game but I, I don't know if that's what they did say mm. the outcome has been delayed now in the meantime football clubs for example are voluntarily now starting to remove gambling sponsorships from the front of their shirts mm. now they're in a very privileged position massive TV deal they probably got some questionable sponsors anyway and questionable owners that to start getting all you know high and mighty about uh, betting sponsorship compared to rugby league you know there's an argument to say that they don't need it but they can recognise that there's a groundswell of opinion in the country that we're having a gambling problem and that it's leading to you know mental health problems gambling addictions Mm. and, and the rise in that and that if you want to be seen as a kind of ethical football team in the community that having a big sponsorship logo on your jersey doesn't fit with that value so Sunderland for example just setting up Spread X massive controversy in, in their fans and Everton I think I'm not sure if it's a betting company or, or a trading company or crypto company or something controversy over that so these things debates are happening in that realm and that's where all the campaigners are kind of focusing their attention Rugby League has slipped by that because of its you know, small, it's a small, you know, sport, doesn't yeah. get media attention. The Betfred thing's been allowed to happen. But at some point, it's inevitably going to come and, and look towards rugby league and it, it'd be interesting to see what happens when it does. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Now, Anthony, sponsorship and more broadly money in sport, as you allude to, is really complicated when you start to think about it. Gambling is a good example of where it gets really tricky. So problem gambling and and gambling addiction is a rising societal problem and it affects lower socioeconomic segments the hardest. A gambling-related harms report from last year by Public Health England noted that harmful gambling is more likely to be associated with people living in more deprived areas. This suggests harmful gambling is related to health inequalities. Now, Anthony, I remember having Professor Tony Collins on the show explaining to us that at the time, five of the 10 English clubs in Super League came from postcodes which are in the 10% most deprived in England. Meanwhile, the other clubs were in the uh, bottom 20%. So this is no breaking news, but just piecing it together to set the scene. Harmful gambling is most associated with the people in the most deprived areas of the country. Rugby League's core audience in the UK is mostly from the most deprived parts of the country, and pretty much the whole domestic rugby league scene is sponsored by a gambling company. Yet, on the other hand, for a little bit of balance, this gambling company, Betfred, is clearly propping up the sport in the UK at a time when money is tighter than ever, which you could argue is a positive uh, for those communities. Anthony, is there a way to balance the commercial side of things with social responsibility when it comes to a complex topic like this? I think you've outlined the kind of complex question really well. It's like a prisoner's dilemma that every rugby league administrator has to face at some point is how do you, you know, if you want to be a sport that's big, part of the national conversation, attracts massive sponsors, attracts different sponsors, but also you're trying to operate within the kind of social economic conditions that just rugby league is constrained by mm. by its geography and that's not a problem of the sport you know as much as it is just generally within you know our economics there is just a lot less opportunities for those big sponsors mm. and sponsors because the way they view rugby league supporters and, and their wealth and what they've got and all that kind of stuff they're just not attracted to the game so 
that's where you get the argument that's been put to me since I wrote the article that, you know, without Betfred, the sport would die. And, and Sean Wayne as well said that himself, as I quoted him in the piece. He said mm. that without Betfred, it would struggle to the point that he actually wants to win the World Cup for Fred Dunn. Now, you've got to ask the question of what is the commercial department of the RFL and Super League doing if it's ended up basically reliant on Fred Dunn's generosity, you know. The other question is, how have we got this the wrong way around? And instead of going, we should be thankful to better Fred for what they give the game, we should be looking at it like, look at what better Fred get out of being associated with us. Mm. Because they're a controversial business. Like Whatever you say about gambling and, you know, it's not being snobbish or anything like that about people who gamble, but it is a controversial industry and people have an attitude towards it. It's like cigarettes or alcohol mm. or, you know, anything like that. And if you can align yourself with a brand like Rugby League, which is relatively, in this country, <laughs> controversy-free, it's in rooted in those communities. It's got really good values about who its people are. So you can get it relatively cheap. You can then kind of take over an entire sport for a few million quid have we got this the wrong way around? Is there a better way that we can sell the sport to sponsors to say, well, you are these certain values, we have them as well, why don't you get on board and invest in it and you can be associated with us? And and I think that's the problem that we've had for a long time is that we've been kind of so thankful to anyone who will even look at us in terms of sponsors. It's why you end up in a deal with Stobart because mm. you're like, well, are oh, you going to give us all these trucks for free? fantastic you know you're kind of grateful for them to do it rather than saying no you, you know you pay us to be on your trucks yeah you know that's not an easy thing to do i understand that that needs big narrative about what the game is it may need you know as we're on the progressive uh, rugby league podcast expansion into new areas new markets so that mm. so that you can attract those sponsors and that's something that isn't really part of the debate really about sponsorship yes. in the 1980s sponsorship was um a kind of badge for what the game wanted to achieve so you know Ellery Hanley was sponsored by Nike and he was on adverts for them and mm. uh, Ellery Hanley was sponsored by Gap sorry and, and he was on billboards for them mm. Martin Afire was sponsored by Nike and was on billboards for them we don't have anything like that in this country anymore mm. and, and alongside that we don't have any diversity of title sponsorship so I, I take your point and uh, sorry the second point is about is, is more broadly about that social question I think Rugby League can't really impact whether people bet really, uh, you know, in those areas. That's probably going to happen. But what they're turning a blind eye to is what they're doing to kind of link betting with watching the game. Mm. The thing that happened with the legislation in 2005 was that gambling companies were able to link watching sport to having a bet with advertising, shirt sponsorship, new markets, etc., etc., etc. To the point where a lot of people now can't watch any sport without having some sort of bet. That is the purpose of, of watching sport. And Rugby League is now getting into a position where it's badged up so much with the betting companies. Mm. There's a danger that younger people are going to only associate the sport with having a bet. And it's okay to do that if you accept that that's what you're doing. But the people who run Rugby League say that there is no downside to this bet for sponsorship or they don't talk about any downside. Mm. They actually actively encourage Betfred as a sponsor, as in they talk about them being a really good benefit for diversity, whatever that means, and you know other aspects of the game. So there's that trade-off that I think within the game we need to have is that, mm. yes, 
we need the money. But what effect is this going to have on the way that people watch the game, future generations, young mm. people in these areas, like you say? So I think it's a very good point. It's one that we just don't really um, talk about. Yeah, well, you make some great points. And as a, an Australian uh, listening to it, it's uh, very pertinent, some of the observations you make. I'll, I'll get to that in a sec. One other observation I, I would say relating to rugby league people in the UK worried that if Betfred were to sort of dilute their investment or, or stop their investment for whatever reason, that, that the game would fall over. You know, people had similar worries when cigarette advertising was, was banned. When, when there's a gap, it'll be filled. So, you know, that's that's one observation. The other one is what I find really interesting is the tricky moral terrain. You know, a lot of the rugby league clubs do such a, a great job with social outreach and have sort of adjoining social outreach organizations that, that sort of accompany their their rugby league club because they are part of the community and, and they're trying to help the community and then you, you juxtapose that with the avalanche of of betting sponsorship and like we said we, we talked about the stats previously it's interesting moral terrain but um your article does rugby league have a gambling problem it's about the british game but the question could equally be posed about the game in Australia, as you alluded to before, and as you note with a sense of bemusement in the article, the situation is actually worse in Australia than it is in the UK, and that's probably true. Jerseys are splashed with gambling logos. There are at least three or four stadiums with gambling naming rights sponsors. Presentations about gambling are part of the coverage. I guess the the difference in Australia is the sport is much bigger. Though the proportion of gambling sponsors is growing you know, there is still a fairly diverse sponsorship portfolio for rugby league yeah. in Australia. But also a major difference is anti-gambling advocates generally lose out here in Australia. It sounds like in the UK they're getting some traction. And we're in a situation in Australia, as far as I can see, that meaningful reform looks unlikely in the foreseeable future. And it also can't be ignored, too, that from Australian rugby league's perspective... Gambling has played a significant role in the game's history. As many people, including Joe Gorman, former guest on this show and author of Heartland, How Rugby League Explains Queensland, as he alludes to, the Sydney competition essentially became the dominant competition in Australia due to poker machine money. Uh, Pokies were and still are everywhere and in Sydney, while they were kind of banned or severely restricted in Queensland until the 80s, I believe. And incidentally, they were restricted by a an extreme sort of conservative government in these days it's progressive politicians who are the ones that are generally trying and failing on poker reform and beyond that sydney clubs rich on that poking money were able to poach a good deal of the best rugby union talent all the way through to the end of rugby's quote-unquote amateurism so gambling in australian rugby league is an interesting conversation problematic sure and also a significant player in cementing the rugby league landscape that we see today, which by most measures is a very robust one. So, complicated. But, um, Anthony, back to the UK. I'm curious, is there a discussion happening within rugby league about this issue? And you kind of mentioned this is what your article is basically trying to start because my sense would be that most people would absolutely not want to know about it or talk about it. You know, don't be a wet blanket, Jono and Anthony. We should be thankful to Brett Fred for supporting sport i guess they'd argue by extension they're supporting those vulnerable communities that love rugby league yeah i think so since the article came out lots of people in the game got in touch and there is a split i mean there's there's the mindset that that this is kind of the end days for rugby league anyway and that if betfred 
in this country, you know, disappear. We will actually be sponsored by it. The only other sponsor, which I forgot to name the article, um, who sponsor another trophy, and that's a company called AB Sundex. Right. I assume you have no idea who they are. Oh, eight, 1895 Cup. I know. 1895 <laughs> Cup, exactly. But they are owned by, and I don't actually know what they do, I should have done research. They are owned by the Lee Centurion's owner, I think, yes. uh, Derek Boltman, who, um, you know, put his money. And that's the kind of future that some people think will happen if Betford pull away. Right. That we're going to, you know, go down further around the localised, regionalised sponsors that nobody's heard of, but will, you know, happily give us 50 grand or whatever. Now, I, I, I don't think we're at that position just yet. But the problem is, is that the longer that we associated with only Betfred, the less other corporate sponsorship is going to come on board. And I had this confirmed by someone who actually talked about being offered some sponsorship for the game. And in the board meeting, it was questioned about whether they wanted to be associated with gambling sponsors on the shirt because it didn't fit their brand. Right. Now, that could happen on any number of you know sponsorship opportunities. That could be anything. You know, sponsorship generally is controversial, and it's not just applied to gambling. But we're getting into a position where how do we get out of this now? You know, mm. so we have got the England jersey that was up for sponsorship this year. Are we saying that as a sport, the only people that were willing to be on the front of our England jersey at a home World Cup that we've got a potential to win when we're playing supposedly at full stadiums in Sheffield and Newcastle and London, all across the country? The only sponsor that wanted to be associated with us, or the best on the table, was Betfred, who already sponsor all these other products in the game. Now, there's got to be questions about why that was done. And I think even if it meant accepting a smaller deal from someone else mm. to show the world that actually we're not just Betfred, we've got loads of people who want to be part of us, and you should be part of us too. That's the kind of dilemma or, or question that we should be asking all the time about the image of the game. Mm. Mm. No one's saying that we should get rid of all sponsorship money whatsoever. Mm. But the question is, what does it say about the Rugby League in 2022 in Britain, where the only interested party is a principal sponsor? You know, there are some other sponsors like Mushy Peas and Northern Rail and, and Vodka, who, you know, who, who sponsor certain things as well on the side. But the principal sponsor is Betfred. So this debate isn't really happening. And the, the second debate is, is, is secondary to that, which is, you know, what happens when this gambling legislation comes in? You know, are we going to be in a weak position? So there's, there's two things happening at the same mm. time. But it's, it's just, it's, I think it says a lot about the state of, of the game in, in 2022 that um, we couldn't find anyone else for the England jersey. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Now, Anthony... Let's go a bit broader and talk about broader issues within the game. So, I mean, this issue that we're talking about is obviously a product of rugby league being in a, a vulnerable financial position after the pandemic and the crumbs from the table TV deal that was struck a couple of years ago. What's your sense on the chances for rugby league to turn around its financial straitjacket predicament? Because from an outsider's perspective, despite the uh, parlous financial state of the UK game at the moment... I've sensed a decent level of optimism in the UK rugby league community when you get past the usual daily din. It's a pretty interesting comp this year. The Challenge Cup final was fantastic. They've partnered with IMG to give them some direction and expertise about the way forward. Plus, there's the halo of the World Cup that's happening later this year. What's your sense from the ground in the UK? I think the, the 
managers themselves are always going to save rugby league in this country. So whether that's the, the amazing grand final we had between Saints and Wigan two mm. years ago, with no one in the ground, which mm. was probably one of the best matches I've ever seen mm. like in terms of intensity. And if you wanted to package that up for sponsors, that was state of origin level mm. intensity and drama. And um, there were so many stories that could have come out of that, but didn't. And that's the kind of problem is that, yes, players will be able to do it on the big day and they might be able to do it in the World Cup for England. But structurally, there is a massive decline in the game if you just look at the headline you know, figures. So the sponsorship problem we talked about, but the TV deal, like you say, has been halved. You also look at the attendances for our big fixtures that are on television. So Challenge Cup final was great at Tottenham this year. You know, I was there and it was a fantastic mm. ground mm. occasion. Second lowest attendance since the Second World War, 50,000. We've gone from 80,000 attendees on average at the Challenge Cup final, you know, six years ago to 50. And how we get back up to 90, if, if that's what we want to do, there's no plan for that apart from, you know, adding a women's game and adding an 1895 Cup and, and adding a, a school kids game, which has recently been announced at the Cup final to get that back up. There's also the grand final last year. Catalan were in the final, so that is maybe distorted, but 20k down on average from where it used to be. So there's a lot of supporters kind of drifting away from the game now. Is it COVID? Is it economic? You know, we've got a massive cost of living crisis in this country, living through it and coming up. We've had the impact of Brexit, all the areas that, that we talked about being economically disadvantaged, having to kind of go in again and kind of keep supporting this sport because we can't attract any new supporters in, in the UK anyway because mm. there's no new teams there's not enough young people watching it there's not enough opportunities so we're kind of just drifting along without a plan of revival into, I know you want to talk about IMG but that's kind of long term hopefully hopefully here and now the game is kind of in a I'd say managed decline some people say that's too too pessimistic but it's not to say that it can't be overcome but we're in a real difficult position at the moment. No, no, fair enough. Well, let's let's get on to the ING stuff. So for us here in, in Oz and, and in New Zealand and North America and beyond, we're watching with interest as to the direction that the UK takes over the next few years. As I mentioned, the RFL has partnered with IMG in a 12-year strategic partnership. They haven't gone down the private equity path. I'm not great with the business stuff, but... IMG haven't bought a stake in the game from what I understand, but they'll take a share of the spoils. So I guess some of the benefits and the risks are similar. In any case, I'm curious, was that the right decision from your perspective? Yeah, 100%, I think. Well, as as we've outlined so far, something needed to be done to kind of revitalise the image of the game and give it that sort of direction. What are we hoping to achieve through this sport? You know, where do we see ourselves in 10 years' time? You know, the NRL, for example seems to have a plan about areas that it wants to develop, whether it's bringing new teams in, whether it's taking state of origin to, to certain areas, whether it's bringing in new legislation around juniors, etc. We don't really have that overarching strategy. You know, we've had Toronto come in. They were supposed to be, you know, the bright hope for the future. We've got a second French team, but we're not supporting them by, 
you know, keeping them in the division. So, so they're probably going to go this year and Lee are going to come up. What does it mean for Lee to be in there? What do the Sky Sports think about this? What do Betfred think about this? Well, I think we know what Betfred think about it. But, um, I, you know, there's all these kind of questions and no one really to lead the discussion and lead us through it because we've had Robert Elston, if you're familiar with, came yeah. in. He was supposed to be the football brain who kind of brought the Premier League mindset to the game. That ended within a couple of years and in complete failure. He would argue he had his hand tied behind his back by the other clubs and no, you know, remit to change things. But the big thing that IMG probably have to come in and sort out is who's making the decisions within the game. You know, who's the executive committee that says we want to develop in Newcastle, we want to develop in Coventry, we want to take a World Cup game to Sheffield. Why are we doing all this? And get the fans on board with how growing these areas actually is beneficial to everyone. Mm-hmm. The new chair of the game is a guy called Lindsay Hoyle, he's an MP, Speaker of the House of Commons, and he said that we have to get bigger and better sponsors. Mm-hmm. And this is part of it. This is part of the kind of sponsorship debate that IMG, I think, are hoping they can bring on board. If they can bring on the business expertise, they can turn it around. But um, at the minute, you've got 12 member clubs, you know, squabbling and voting on every single thing, 12 competing factions, 12 different worldviews, 12 different markets, 12 different ideas about what success is. Absolutely no way to kind of plan for a 20-year development of the game. So if IMG can come in, I don't know what IMG are going to do. The only thing that I've seen them do because of chat to people in the game is that they've had a big consultation about the structure. Mm. They want to know about relegation and promotion and and what our thoughts on that. So they seem to have canvassed a lot of thoughts on that. Mm. That's a debate we've had in this country for 20 years now. And I don't, I don't think anyone has the right answer to that one. It it basically depends on your worldview and what you want from that. And the other thing that they've, they seem to be interested in is TikTok. They've done a, a big kind of audit of the social media profile of the game and, They've audited who's got TikTok, who hasn't. Whether they think that's a way of getting young people involved, I don't know. But we still haven't seen anything from IMG yet on what they want from the game and what what they can bring to it. It's very early days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But on that question, of course, if they've got such a historic experience in in sports management that we'd be stupid not to, to listen to them and take it on board. But we have to actively listen if they tell us some some things that we don't want to hear Mm. we need someone in the game to actually take responsibility for that and do the really hard decisions that are going to you know they might even upset you know people like us but if it's done for the right reason at least we can kind of get on board with it Mm -hmm. and you know support it but at the minute there's no communication about about that yeah now you mentioned there hasn't been much given away in terms of what IMG are thinking You've got your ear to the ground. Are there any hints as to the direction, particularly around two of the common areas of debate? You mentioned promotion and relegation, but also the future of French teams in the Super League. From what you've heard, any kind of hints that you can give us about what they're thinking on those two particular topics? As I say, that's the thing that there seems to be the main focus at the minute is sorting out the structure. Now, whether that's to get to a you know a 10-team Super League with home and away fixtures and, and, and other fixture somewhere else or whether it's uh, franchising or whether I think it's all up for debate at the minute what yeah. essentially probably will happen is that there's going to be a lot of funding cut to League One and Championship clubs mm-hmm. even more funding cut and 
they might you know divide even further away from the top pyramid but it's all rumors at the minute i'd love to hear someone from ing come out and explain what they've thought of the game where it can improve at the moment they seem to be quite i mean this is just from following some of their people on social media they just seem to be quite positive about the game Mm. and and like oh it's a great sport there's there's lots of opportunities and i'm not sure whether we need another cheerleader and Mm. you can come in and say oh you're a great game you got a great history aren't you great people i think we need someone with a really strong business head who understands the climate that sports are operating in now Mm. to come in and say here is where you're going wrong here's why you're getting a lesser tv deal here's why you're getting very little traction on social media here's why you have absolutely no celebrities in the uk you know the last famous rugby league player to come out of this country is martin a fire and mm. you have to be in your 50s now to have watched him play at a certain level so it's like it's, it's those sorts of questions that i'm not sure yet whether they're, they're ready to address because they're new to the game or whether they've even got that remit i yep. don't know whether whether they've got the remit to come in you know ralph rimber who runs again this country and is kind of responsible for the whole betfred development he, you know, used to make great plays, you're aware of going out for coffee with the Hearns and, mm. and they were going to come in and they were going to do something big. But then Eddie Hearn, as you probably read, absolutely slagged the game off in GQ magazine saying it's dying, it's dead, it's finished. Mm. I think seeing this and being invited to a Challenge Cup final, he just thought it was an absolute joke. You know, he couldn't believe that they couldn't fill it for a Challenge Cup final. And uh, that may be him being bitter because he wasn't invited on to, to, to do something and he was trying to show that, you know, he was better than it. But it said a lot about how, you know, the sport got played on that. And it's, that's the kind of world we're operating in now. Who's going to be our front man? Who's going to yeah. be our Hearn? Who's going to be our IMG? Is it yeah. going to be IMG? We just don't know yet. But obviously, it, it, it's absolutely needed for the British game. So we support what they're trying to do, yeah. um, I think, in Spain. Yeah. yeah, well, for Australian and other listeners, Eddie Hearn is a British boxing promoter and, and very yes. meme-friendly character. <laughs> you see him a lot yeah. online. He's, he's, he's kind of got a bit of the kind of Peter Volandis about him, I, I think. <laughs> he's kind of just got that kind of yeah. gets himself at the media. Very good at, very, very good at marketing sporting events. But, you yeah. know, boxing in the country now and the mm. fights that he promotes, absolutely huge. Well beyond people who would traditionally be interested in boxing he's a marmite character a bit like someone like maurice Lindsay, you know a bit like his dad was his dad barry, barry Hearn, revolutionized snooker in the 1980s mm. but a certain period when we're talking about two years rugby league was obsessed with getting them involved or they were talking about getting them involved so mm. this is something that's been going on for a long time with absolutely no end product you know as far as i can see as a complete outsider sure. in, in the last five years or so so img have got a massive opportunity with the world cup and things happen let's see what they can bring to the table now anthony if you were asked for a coffee by img you know firstly what would you order <laughs> and more importantly what would your advice be on, on those so i want to get back to those two points promotion on the relegation and future of french teams I'm curious, uh, yeah. you know, this is only as, as a fan and a, a lover of the game yeah, as yeah. you are. I'm just curious what your thoughts would be. Having lived in Melbourne for a bit of my life, I'm obviously <laughs> obsessed with flat whites. Um, <laughs> so I'll be getting, I'll be getting a flat white, um, <laughs> which is which is probably the progressive rugby league. After, right? Um, <laughs> well, I don't drink coffee, so. Uh, oh well, there you go. Yes, yeah, so I shouldn't stereotype. Um, <laughs> So maybe it'd be the Yorkshire Tea. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, they probably should actually sponsor the game, Yorkshire Tea. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think I think the question.
touching on um, promotion and relegation, I think the first thing we have to do before we even think about structure is where do we want the game to be played? Like the World Cup this year is being played in lots of different areas like Middlesbrough, Coventry, Newcastle, Sheffield. Are we saying that these are growth areas for the sport? And if they are, how do we find a way of, of growing it um, within our structure? Currently, you know, we've, we've developed the game in France with Catalan Dragons really well, I would say, as in they're the, the you know, the, probably the people don't like it when you call them expansionist teams mm. because they've been so long. Mm. But in terms of coming into the UK and entering our competition, they're a kind of new venture in the way that Melbourne Storm were or mm. whatever, mm. to us anyway. And that has been a huge success in terms of how good they've been on the field, but also the fan experience of, of the way that a lot of supporters have got involved with their trips to France. And I think most people would say that they've been good for the game. Mm. But that took a long time and it took a lot of kind of development and protection of that club. So mm. that, you know, if they come in in the first season like Toulouse are this year, when they, even though they had Stacey Jones in the team, they finished bottom. Where would they be now? I mean, also, you know, five years ago, they were in a million-pound match against Lee. Mm. They were down at half-time, and they somehow, through the, you know, will of the players, managed to stay up. And, and the, you know, within two years, they're winning Challenge Cups and, and, and they're playing in Grand Finals. Mm. Now, they could have been gone now if they'd been relegated. Now... Again, that's fine if that's the uh, model that you want to have because, you know, the, the argument is always made in this country, we love promotion and relegation, we have to have promotion and relegation, otherwise no one's going to be interested in the game, you know, from 5th to 12 downwards because we don't, we just don't, we're not into playoff system, even though we've had it for 20 years, it's yeah. just not natural part of our sporting culture in this country, shall we say. But you have to, again, accept the trade-offs of that, that you're not going to really be able to expand beyond where you are and, and that for, it's going to be a battle between Lee and Wakefield and Witness and, and, and those kind of sort of teams to come up and down every year my own personal view is that we should work out where we want to play then devise a kind of 14 team franchise competition around that mm-hmm. I think I wrote that probably six years ago in, in an article where I was talked about um, you know 13 ways that the game could be improved and that, that might be deciding that we want to Bradford, London, Toulouse and another team and we just protect it and we develop it for 10 years and then after 10 years we decide you know we're going to accept more applications that's obviously a massively controversial view and it goes against you know a lot of the smaller clubs who would say that they're just as much a part of of the competition and they have a right to be in Super League but Mm. the problem we have is that we can't consistently sell what the sport's going to look like to broadcasters um, if we have promotion and relegation, you know, Sky Sports don't know, you know, next year whether there's going to be Lee or Featherstone or Toulouse or mm. even Warrington or Leeds could have got relegated this year because they were playing so yeah. badly. No one can tell me that if Warrington or Leeds get relegated or Wigan, who nearly got relegated in 2006, that that wouldn't have a negative effect on the, the sport as a whole. And I don't think we're big enough to lose those big clubs and not protect them. Yeah. It's controversial, but I think if you want to survive in this day and age, with the small pot that we've got, we have to kind of protect the clubs yeah. that are bigger, essentially. Yeah, well, that, I mean, Anthony, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. A couple of things I would add to that is I'm glad you said 14 teams. If IMG miraculously came to me, I, I really get wary when people say, oh, we've got to make sure it's high quality, a, a 10-team competition or a 12-team competition. No, 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 no. <laughs> if, you have, if you have 12 or less teams 
in a competition that runs for six or more months. It just gets boring. More teams, more variety, play each other less often. Less is more in terms of playing, you know, your rival teams. Uh, so I'm glad really you said point. 14 teams. It's a really good point. And actually, that has been the, I would add to the kind of big problem that we've got in this country is that there are just, the teams play each other so much. So Wigan and St. Helens are going to play again at the end of this season, mm-hmm. um, which is now kind of meaningless fixture. They've already played each other twice and in the Challenge Cup. So they'll probably, if they get to the grand final, which it probably will be Wigan Saints, it usually is, it's five times in the space of eight months yeah. that they're going to play each other. And you build that up over a 10-year period mm. to 56 games and you just, the interest is just, you just lose it. Like, it's the perfect point that he's making is the kind of, and the NRL is good at this. They don't, you know, some teams only play each other once a year. That's right. Which is, you know, they don't even do the home and away. And I think, you know, the loop fixtures should be one thing that the, the IMG look at. If you get a 14-team competition, you could potentially get rid of that. The other thing you could do is if you have to have 10 teams, you could find other ways of making up for that shortfall. Whether that's, why not have a nines competition? They're three weeks in the middle of the season, like what they're trying to do in cricket now with the 100, mm. which is just about bringing young people in. Yep. You know, you could even say, this is going to be on BBC. There's going to be no gambling sponsorship. It's going to be free for kids to go in. And you try and add another product to the season that isn't just the same teams playing each other again and again and again, mm. which is where we're at now. And if we go to 10 and they decide to play each other three times, which is something that was muted by someone, I think yeah. you are heading to disaster. So yeah, yeah, I just wanted to add to your Yeah, no, no, no worries. The other thing I was going to add was also around promotion relegation in terms of my journey with British Rugby League over the last few years doing this show, when I first got into the show and started, you know, focusing on British Rugby League more, I was romanced by promotion and relegation as someone from Australia who doesn't have it. I love the idea of it because there was so much consequence, you know, like there's so much consequence, whereas like here you come last, there's no real consequence, just try again next year. But then I read Tony Hannon's wonderful underdogs, which follows the Batley Bulldogs through their 2015 season. And they were kind of you know, an outside chance of being promoted to Super League from the championship. And it was pretty clear that they actually didn't want to (laughs) get promoted. So that changed my mind because there's like at least half of those championship clubs that actually don't want to be promoted because it'll probably send them broke. They're not set up infrastructure-wise for it. And so... I think that's a a really good point. And that's the kind of argument that a lot of people in the game are making is that there should be a, a bigger split between professional and semi-professional side of the game yeah. and all those that kind of want to have aspirations to be in Super League should be you know in one yeah. bit and those that just want to be part of the community and be semi-pro and which actually you know the the model for that you know clubs like Newtown Jets I assume they're semi-professional players and, and, yeah. and yeah. The, the kind of the model that you can you can still have a different game in these areas that doesn't need to be top level Super League. You can enjoy Super League and international. Mm. You can go and watch your local Hunslet side as well. Hunslet doing like good things and Keith Lee Cougars do good things. Mm. So I think you're right. You can have the two. Um, just to go back on the relegation point though, I'll, I'll actually contradict myself because you can, they can actually. Sometimes it does actually work in terms of adding narrative to the game. I think in the mid two thousands we got kind of really obsessed with this idea of a million pound match because mm. it actually happened for real between Cass and Wakefield mm-hmm. where it got down to the last round of the season and the winner of the game, loser, winner or loser of the game, got relegated and it, 
it, it kind of added like a second grand final to to the season. And I think we got kind of really into the idea that this battle between two lower clubs could be as big and as interesting and as easy mm. to sell as a grand final. Wigan, when they were in a relegation battle in 2006, you know, I, mm. I'm from Wigan and I was watching Wigan as a kid then. And it was probably the best season I've ever had watching any sort of sport. Because, yeah, right. you know, your club's in a relegation battle and you really wanted them to get out of it. And what the club did unbelievably, and I don't really know how they did it, and it's not been really studied, was they mobilised the whole town behind them to kind of get behind them. So yeah. There's no criticism of, of the players after a certain point in the season when they got a new manager. It all became about get behind them, get them to stay up. Yeah. Um, that's not happening this season at Warrington, for example. So, um, you know, they're turning away in droves because the team's underperforming. Yeah. So... You could actually have a relegation system where teams, if they were, you know, savvy about it, had had people on board, you could actually mobilise, but it just mm. doesn't happen. And it kind of just ends in a position where you're, you're scrapping at the bottom, yeah. you have this jeopardy, no one knows where the money's going to come. So it just ends up being, um, yeah. it doesn't end up being exciting as well as people. I don't think the Toulouse relegation battle this year has been that exciting. It's just been a little bit... Yeah, it's sad. Happened and a bit sad for the ones who want them to stay up and good for yeah. the ones who don't. But it hasn't really been Wakefield to lose. Who's going to stay up? Everyone must get. Yeah, everyone's watching this. Mm. It hasn't been like that. So yeah. you know, it's it's, it's it. No, they're good points. And and I, you know, as a neutral, I love the idea of promotion relegation. It it does add drama to the season. I think it's absolutely fascinating from an entertainment point of view. But when you get the the situation where the division below. There's only like three or four teams that actually want to go up. Uh, that kind of suggests that it might not be the the best way to go. But like, it's yeah. it's for, for better minds. Anthony, do you have time to to go even broader than we have already? I've, I've taken up a lot of your time. I've got a couple more questions. Do you have time for it yeah, to go? Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Let's go even broader than Anthony. So. You're a, a UK Labour Party historian and commentator. Now, rugby league in the UK and the Labour Party ha- have a long shared history. But of course, at the last UK general election, and we've touched on this in past episodes, there was a swing in many rugby league heartland areas to the Conservatives, the infamous Workington man. Uh, has this kind of intense swing away from Labour ever happened before in, in rugby league's time? And as painful as it might sound to some people, maybe even us, is it a positive thing for rugby league that it is a more contested political space? It should be. It absolutely should be because for a long time in this country, we never really... The, the way our political system works is there's a certain amount of key voters that become important at every general election. Yeah. So, you know, Labour, it's usually between Labour and Conservative and they will battle it out to win the marginal seats to then become you know, government. And for a long time, you know, as we talk about the Labour government that brought in the gambling legislation, they were trying to appeal to a country that, you know, become more conservative. And they spent a lot of time appealing to middle class, middle income voters, which they had to do to win. Everyone kind of thinks it was a political masterstroke to do so because it led to 12 years of, of Labour government. But in that time, the kind of rugby league communities that, had, you know, been Labour's base for that you know, hundred years kind of weren't part of the debate. Mm-hmm. They weren't they weren't voters that needed to be won over. 
you know, a lot of investment happened in those areas, you know, post-industrial areas after, you know, jobs went away and the Labour government put a lot of money in and the Tories then would later talk about a Northern powerhouse and the last World Cup in this country, the Conservative government supported it, Rugby League World Cup, they supported it because they thought it'd be good for the North. So there's always been discussions about these areas. But in reality, the middle, you know, Basildon and these lots of places, uh, middle-class areas, uh, mm. they were always... The the, the ones that everyone fought for. That's totally changed now because of what happened in 2019. And the key battlegrounds at the next general election are going to be Warrington, Workington, Lee, all these kind of places where Labour need to win and Conservatives need to hold. So in that, it, and naturally, there should be opportunities for Rugby League and the councils in the area and the MPs that serve those areas to bring investment into those towns, revive the high streets. You know, one of the debates... Uh, ironically about high streets is that there's far too many betting shops there now and that there's too many charity shops and lots of empty properties and that these areas need investment to turn them around and all part of that I don't know how much you know about this thing called levelling up which is basically Boris Johnson's big play for these areas that he was going to level up these working class communities a lot of the rugby towns to kind of London levels of investment in transport in jobs and mm. in, in housing etc now as you can imagine a promise like that that was made two years ago has <laughs> quickly fallen apart yeah. for many reasons but the space there for Labour to kind of come in and say well if you're not going to do it we're going to do it mm. and rugby league should be a massive part of that debate because there's a report that came out which talks about the social value of rugby league for every pound that's put in, what comes out of it, whether it's in terms of health, education, mental health, community cohesion, identity. Rugby league is the kind of last link in a lot of these places to the old industrial way of life. And um, if they disappear, a lot of the kind of social side, side of life disappears as well. Yeah. Now, now, they kind of played on it a little bit when COVID happened. I don't know if you remember, we essentially got a loan, and it was a loan from the government That's to keep right. the sport going. But it was a loan. It wasn't a kind of, <laughs> it's, you know, money to keep you going. It was, you're going to pay this back. And already, Ralph Rimmer, who uh, said it was, you know, a fantastic deal, and was praised for it, and he rightly so, because it was a kind of, you know, period where we didn't know what was going to happen with the game, and we needed that money because we had no reserves. Mm. Now people are rolling back on it. You know, the whole chairman, for example, recently said, we are never going to pay this money back. Mm. So we've not utilised it massively so far, I don't think. I mean, I don't know if you heard, did you hear about the Nadine Doris story? She's a, a, a very peculiar, I can't I can't think who I can compare her to in Australian politics, but she's an interesting character, so let's put it that way. And she, um, she got the rugby's confused, right? She went yeah. to the launch of the World Cup in St. Helens and <laughs> talked about Johnny Wilkinson's drop goal yeah. in 2003, yeah. um, which is the kind of gaffe that she makes all the time. But it just said a lot about where rugby league is in this country that that could happen. I mean, it wasn't like mixing up a player or getting a team name wrong. It was getting an entire sport wrong. You know, it's like... <laughs> You know, I don't know if there's a politician in Australia that will get the wallabies and the kangaroos mixed up. You know, yeah. we're, we're, so we're, we're still at that position where there's a bit of cosplaying, where MPs are kind of pretending to like rugby league and coming along to games, but actually they don't have anything to say about it and they haven't really yet talked about how rugby league can figure in these levelling up plans and that's the kind of things that I like to write about and I talk to MPs about it when I get opportunity to and yep. there's some who get it but you know Labour aren't in power so those ones who represent those areas can't do much 
And um, the Conservative ones, well, the whole levelling up idea is about to be probably junked when we get a new Prime Minister. So, so it will be interesting to see what happens. But Never. I think absolutely, your, your original point, it does, it should be seen as an opportunity for the game because now we, our voters, our rugby league fans, are at the epicentre of political life. And yeah. they're the ones that need to be won over. And if rugby league can tag onto that, all, all power to them. Now, from a slightly different angle and from a, a purely political perspective is a close bond to rugby league politically productive for the uk labor party or is that a bit overblown i mean as you kind of allude to every politician from every persuasion aligns with their local sports team so you could argue it's all a bit meaningless or is is it different for rugby league and the labor party because of what you might call a shared dna i, I guess i guess what i'm asking anthony is that to win back those areas that went tory is is forging or even exaggerating that rugby league identity that's cemented in history, is that at least part of the strategy? Or does it not matter much either way because it's about Brexit, it's about cost of living, it's about quote-unquote real stuff? What's the, it's a kind of proxy question of how important rugby league remains in those communities. It's, it's a really good question. It, it, the thing is, is that it all comes back to identity, right? So if a politician could come along and articulate a story about the North, a story about its people and its character and its history that resonated with those supporters. You know, Rugby League could have, could be a huge part of that. You know, Rugby League, I, I've talked to a few people about this, about we don't talk about Rugby League exceptionalism. The kind of characters that come out of this game that become leaders in, you know, for example, in like Rugby Union, for example, like Sean Edwards, Andy Farrell, Jason Robinson, they go to Rugby Union and people go, there's something in your character, your DNA that makes you special that mm. you wouldn't have got just from being, you know, public school kid at Eton who played rugby union and ended up in the system. Eddie Jones, who you'd be familiar with, obviously, mm. he is absolutely obsessed with the class divide in this country, holding rugby union back. <laughs> he wants as many working class northern players in his dressing room as he can get because he thinks that they have something different whether it's a tougher upbringing a tougher mindset whatever you want to call it package it up as he spotted something that rugby league hasn't really spotted like we don't talk about our you know players in that way mm. we haven't sold them as kind of um, exceptional people from you know tough backgrounds you know you know i wrote a piece about rugby league players never having a night up before and, and that kind of feeds into this like, like mm. idea that we don't sell our exceptionalism. And that, that comes from being working class and not wanting to do that or being uncomfortable doing it and the rest of it. But Labour politicians don't really do it either. They don't really have that story about, you know, what happened to these areas after, after Thatcherism and deindustrialisation, what led to Brexit? Mm. How can I revitalise your town and make you feel, you know, more optimistic and positive for the future? Rugby League could be an essential part of that because it's got the kind of, key components of what people want you know people say that you should keep them separate and it's not about politics and sports separate and it's not about you know Keir Starmer turning up to the Challenge Cup final as he did and enjoying it and tweeting about it it's about a much bigger kind of what does the fact that this root sport has survived and that people put so much into it and that you know, we write about it we talk about it we do podcasts about it we go and support the amateur game we have the people who go and do things for free by supporting it. We had supporters who gave all their money back after the COVID crisis, even though they were probably skint themselves, 
to keep the clubs going. There's a story here, a positive story about um, rugby league in this country that is political, that is about the identity of Britain. It is about, you know, England as a national team should be articulating that, whether it's the manager, the captain of the respective teams, about what it means to be a an English rugby league player today and what it means to represent the country. We don't do any of that, really. We haven't really kind of found a way to, to get people behind it. Mm. And I think it comes back from narrative, and that's the one thing I'll say to IMG, if anyone listens to this from IMG, if they've got this far, they, um, they, they've got to find a way of telling that story about who we are, what we are, and what we represent, and, and then just go out and sell it. Go out and sell it to people that beyond Betfred. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know that's out of politics as well Labour Party's been in opposition for a long time now in this country 12 years almost and it still can't really tell that story about you know what they want to do who they are why they're here and how they're going to turn people's lives around and, and there's kind of a parallel between the two of them yeah. Rugby League and Labour Party are seemingly in decline and people say it's because they used to represent these industrial areas yeah. well maybe it's because they don't understand them anymore and maybe it's because they don't really you know have put the effort into kind of getting them back on side. Yeah, I, I guess that that's what I'm asking in terms of the Labour Party struggling to tell that story. I guess my question is, do you think in trying to tell that story at the you know towards the upcoming election that they will utilize rugby league or has rugby league declined to a point where Labour's not even going to bother because it's not not going to make a difference because the rugby league's not that important to these communities anymore as it once was. Obviously, it's still important, but not as it once was, and therefore it's not really worth being part of the strategy because they've got to worry about you know cost of living and and other stuff. Yeah, I think well, obviously, there's going to come back to the bread and butter issues of politics. It always will, and Labour mm. will probably win back a lot of these seats at the next election. Because they were, you know, they were won by tight margin. But Boris Johnson's kind of tapped into something by, you know, framing them as working to man and saying we kind of represent, you know, you and your values and, and and what you and a lot of the kind of I think there's a misunderstanding about Brexit in some regards is that people think it was a kind of vote to kind of reverse forty years and go back to a certain way of living. I think it was more about actually modernising towns and stopping young people leaving towns and, and getting investment into the towns and, and I think Rugby League was a bit of a symbol for that for some people that right. we used to be a big sport and we used to be important and now we're not as much so and, and perhaps Brexit felt into that discontent about you know the way things are and the way things used to be and and can we create a positive future around it and and rugby league you know labor labor are missing a trick if they don't do that i i don't think they will i don't think they'll openly make a big offer to rugby league if anything they're going to be accused of killing the game because i would you know bring it full circle if you could get to betfred and have a bet on this i think labor's next manifesto will call for a complete ban on all gambling um sponsorship i don't know that but that's what was in the last manifesto so that's kind of, again, they've got the same dilemma that yeah. they've got to appeal to these people on one hand and try and tap into that rugby league idea and the idea of rugby league. But at the same time, they've got a moral, social argument that they don't want gambling in sport and they think it's bad for society. So yeah. it'd be interesting to see if you had, if you had Keir Starmer, Labour leader on here, what do you would say about that? Yeah, well, he's he next that. week's guest, actually. So, uh, no, I'm joking. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that 
that is going down the pommy theme a bit too much. <laughs> <Yeah>. but, uh, <laughs> right. Well, it's, uh, it's fascinating stuff, Anthony. We could talk all day, but we are out of time, unfortunately. You've got to get to work. I've got to get back to work, actually. So let's call it a day. <laughs> but uh, thanks for the article, Does Rugby League Have a Gambling Problem? Thanks for the historical context you always bring to important issues through the tides of history and beyond. And thanks for joining the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Thank you very much. Progressive Rugby League. Anthony Broxton, ladies and gents. The Tides of History is well worth a follow if you're interested in Labour politics with a dash of Rugby 13. All right, let's call it. Thanks as always, friends. Until we next meet somewhere at a picket line singing about union songs and union battles. Rugby League, call me and see ya. Hold up. 